I'm going to be reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 20. If you want to follow along in the Bibles in the pews, that's on page 936. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. A little over 12 years ago, my father died from complications uh, due to surgery. He was living in Hungary at the time, having returned to his country of origin. And so my sister and I did one of those emergency flights uh, that you can do sometimes. Uh, we arrived uh, just the, the afternoon before he died that night uh, and then spent the next uh, week and a bit organising the funeral. Uh, but before the funeral, though, I was asked whether I'd like to see his body. Uh, I wasn't sure, since I'd never seen a dead body uh, at that time, uh, and was a little apprehensive, but eventually thought that it would be a good thing, and, and actually I think uh, it was. I remember quite vividly uh, going into the building, uh, the kind of Hungarian equivalent of a mortuary, uh, and being led to a place where there's a, a room with a door around the side and, and a window, and I got to stand outside the room where the, the body was, and there's a curtain on this window, and a man went in, and then he pulled back the curtain uh, so that uh, that exposed for, to view uh, the body. And as the curtain's being drawn back, I wondered if it would be shocking or scary uh, or perhaps offensive. And it turned out that it wasn't any of those things, at least not for me. In fact, uh, there was very little to feel at all about the body per se. The sadness, of course, was there. But about the body, there was very little to feel because death is like that. It leaves a person inert, utterly powerless, just pathetically neutral. There's no colour, there's no movement, there's no hope. There's no possibility. It's just pretty obvious that death is the end. And actually, I think uh, everyone knows that. I presume it was on this basis that Thomas Jefferson, who's one of the kind of great outstanding figures in American history, uh, edited his own special version of the Bible. I, I guess you've got to be, or at least think yourself to be, a pretty outstanding person in history to edit your own version of the Bible. And he was pretty confident enough to do that. And so he deleted all reference to the resurrection because he knew that death is the end. Now, the closing words of Jefferson's Bible, or the gospel at least, are these. Uh, there they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone at the mouth of the sepulchre and departed. And that was it, because death is always the end. Now, it's not just at the personal level that death is the end. For the Bible, uh, death, in a sense, has a capital D. Uh, death is not just sort of a, a fact or a tragedy. 
uh, death is a character in a cosmic drama that pits the forces of death and its power, sin and evil, because they're the things that lead to death, pits them against the good purposes of God for life and peace and flourishing. A good creation uh, brought into being by a good God tended by his image-bearing agents, human beings. That's the big picture of the Bible. And it's pretty clear how that drama's unfolding, don't you think? It looks awfully like death is winning hands down because death is always the end. Or at least that's what we think when we underestimate the power and the determination of the living and true God. Because he will not be robbed of his creation. He will not be thwarted in his purpose. And he has won a great victory in Jesus Christ. You see, maybe, just maybe, if all God had wanted to do was to inspire us with an example of love, maybe, just maybe, he might have left Jesus in the tomb then. But there is so much more to the Christian gospel than that. So much more to the work of Jesus Christ than that. And it's this really dense, rich, beautiful paragraph of 1 Corinthians 15 that gives us a window into the panorama of God's purposes. You'll see we're going to uh, unpack it under three headings here. Christ undoes what Adam does. Uh, Second, there is an order. And then thirdly comes the end. And if we've got enough time, because this is, I think, a pretty interesting and important topic, I'm going to to move through the sermon pretty quickly. And if there are questions at the end, then you feel free. Uh, I'll open up for questions uh, then. So firstly then, Christ undoes what Adam does. So we pick it up at verse 20. Uh, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the fact. And now the interpretation. The first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Now, notice three very, very important things here. Uh, the first is the idea of first fruits. Uh, that is, the, the start of a harvest which guarantees that the rest of the harvest is to come. Okay, so this is agriculture. I know pretty much zip about agriculture, but I've read some things and here's what they tell me. Um, you put things in the ground and it looks like nothing's happening. And you wait. And you wait, and you wait, and, and then a tomato pops out. At least I've, this is what happened with my vegetable patch over here. We put these little seeds in the ground, they're little sticks, they're just pathetic, they look like they're dead. And then you see, you see a tomato. And it's, it's, it's right there in front of you. And what that tells you, it's not just you've got a tomato and it's like, wow, there's a tomato, that'll last us all of you know, two seconds. Uh, No, it's the fact that because there's one like that, then the harvest, you know, all 20 or whatever they are, the harvest of them is coming soon. Now, for for me and my tomatoes in my veggie patch, I mean, uh, it's not much of a deal because I can just go to the supermarket where real tomatoes are grown and you can can buy them there, right? Uh, But in an agrarian society where life is 
unbelievably marginal, where they were on the edge of starvation every single harvest, where a bad harvest meant your children died. But it's that kind of level of, of marginality that we're talking about. The first fruits was an occasion of unbelievable rejoicing and thanksgiving. The first corn, the first wheat, the first figs meant that you had a taste of the future right there. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this fact that is written in history, that is unalterable, that is accessive, uh, sorry, accessible in an objective manner, that if you had a video camera there at the time, you could have recorded it. It's that level of objectivity. It's, it's a fact, but it's not only a fact. It is a victory, a triumph. Here is the first crack in the veneer of death. Here is the first breach of death's dreadful walls as this one comes up. The first fruits. Here the perfect future glory has broken into our time right now. And of course the point is that connected to him, you too can be connected to that perfect future glory. So first fruits. Secondly, um, and, and perhaps kind of a little bit more complex, uh, this rests on the fact that from the Bible's perspective there really are only two theological people. There might be, you know, 11 billion people that lived in the world in various different, you know, massive diversity, huge kind of differences of language and culture and history and background and colour and all that kind of stuff. But, but in the end, there's two. There's Adam and there's Christ. And from the Bible's perspective, you are in the field of influence of either one of these or the other. Whatever the myriad, massive differences there are that might be between people, when it comes down to it, there are only two kinds of people theologically. Those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. Now, Paul's not especially focused on the history of it here. He's doing theology. And the point is that being... Uh, in being the first fruits from the dead, what's, what's happening here is that Christ undoes what Adam does. And I'm going to give you an illustration. I heard this illustration. Uh, it works because I, I've, uh, I've done this. You may know the sport of mountaineering. Uh, you may have seen it on TV. Has anyone done any mountaineering here? I presume that I'm the only one that's done mountaineering. Uh, uh, and so I'm going to speak with a great deal of authority, which actually is beyond my experience, but I did this. I really did this. A mountaineering is when you climb mountains of snow and ice. Okay? And the way you do it is like this. Uh, you, you, you get all dressed up and you've got all sorts of gear on and you've got an ice axe and you've got uh, things on your boots called crampons and you, 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 you kick them into the ice wall. And, and the way that you make it safe for each other is that you all tie a rope along to each other. Okay? So that there's maybe five or ten of you in a string like this. And there's, there's the guy at the front, and then the rope to the next guy, and then the rope to the next guy. And, and, and the, the thing about mountaineering is that from the perspective of the group, the only two people that matter are the first guy and the last guy. It's really interesting. As long as the first guy and the last guy are solid, 
And, and I've, I've seen this, where, where one falls off, the, the, the rest, and especially the first, the first and the last, hold him. Okay, so work with the illustration. It's flawed. I'll tell you how it's flawed in a moment, but just go with the illustration for a moment. You see, the Bible's framework is that that first mountaineer, whose name was Adam, fell, literally. He slipped or jumped or grasped after something stupid or foolish or wicked. And he fell. Fell to a horrible fate, actually. And as he fell, because everyone is connected to him, umbilically, if you like, one after another, every other person in the human chain fell as well, dragged down by him. Except the last one, the second Adam. And here's the illustration is going to break down here, okay? So just let it go with it. Let your imagination work. It's just okay for it to not be perfect. The rope snaps around him and the whole weight of the human race falling descends upon him and squeezes him. And with a mighty effort, he takes a swing of his axe and he puts a stake in the ground for God and he holds. And then he pulls up. And he undoes the terrible effect of what the first Adam has done. He breaks the fall. He raises up those who are fallen. Now, the illustration is flawed, right, because it's very hard to have a, a mountaineer that dies and rises again from the dead, because that's kind of tough, and so it doesn't work like that. And, and um, the connection to the first Adam is natural, uh, umbilical, as I put it, uh, but, of course, the connection to the second Adam, Christ, is spiritual by faith. But, but can, you, can you get the point of the, the illustration that's trying to capture there are only these two theological people and one drags you down if you're connected to him and the other one pulls you up, raises you up if you're connected to him. All die in Adam. That's what Paul says. That's his gravitational field. It's the field of plunging into death. It's the power of a black hole that just sucks everyone in with it. And, and what the Apostle is saying is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just an historical fact, though it certainly is that, but rather he is the second, he is the most powerful, more influential human being in the whole history of the world, the second Adam. Christ undoes and raises up that which has fallen if you're connected to him. As all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But thirdly, notice that Christ undoes it like Adam does it. This is, this is even more intense, if you like. He does it as a human being. He does it from the inside. He, he doesn't do it by sort of standing at a distance and kind of offering some advice. No, the way Christ does it is by getting down and dirty into the mess and cleaning it up from the inside. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. That's what Jesus Christ has done, defeating death from inside. He had to go all the way into it, breaking through it, 
out into the way it was always meant to be, according to God's good creation purposes. Finally, now, a human being actually fulfilling this purpose and destiny that God had for us humans. You see, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Do you get the scope of this? Um, These two figures, Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the last Adam, have an impact way beyond themselves, universal, in fact. And, And Christ, as the second Adam, comes into God's world to undo what Adam did from the inside. And feel the force of it, because if I can put it like this, Paul is so captivated by the sheer magnificence of this achievement of God in Jesus Christ. He's so blown away by, by not just, again, I say, just not, not just a fact, yeah, yeah, reel off a bunch of facts, but what this actually means, that he almost misspeaks. Did you hear it on the way through? He almost takes the parallelism too far. As all die in Adam, what, what's, what's got to come next, right? So all will be made alive in Christ. It sounds like he's saying that all people are saved in Christ in the same way that all people are under the dominion of death in Adam. Because he's so just in awe of the, of the significance of the cosmic achievement of God in Jesus Christ. Now he clarifies in the next verse that that's not actually what he means. That it's all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's only those who are connected to Jesus Christ by faith, of course. If you cut yourself off in the rope from Christ, then how can he bring you up? But my point here is that the utter glory and brilliance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ almost leads Paul to tip over into that. Now, what might happen if you believe this, that that's what God has done in Jesus Christ? The greatest victory possible, the victory over death itself, that God in Jesus has done what the doctors and the researchers and the scientists and the gurus throughout the centuries have been utterly incapable of doing. All of them, all desperately trying to do the one thing, which is to defeat death, and they cannot do it, and he has done it. He has done it. What might happen if you actually believed that? Well, what might happen is that you might think that connected to Jesus Christ, you have become entirely immortal right now. You see, so if, you, if, you think, if you think, wow, I'm connected to Jesus Christ. Turns out that the Corinthians had made that kind of error and so Paul has to correct them and as he corrects them, he helps and teaches us. We need to keep reading on to point two. You see, there's an order. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There's an order to this resurrection of which Paul is speaking. Christ is the first fruits. That means that he's the one who's at the start of the harvest and then later, and Paul actually tells you when it is, what the timetable is. It's at his coming. At his coming, those who belong to Christ will also be raised from the dead. Now, I say raised from the dead and we go, yeah, raised from the dead. I'm going to give you a quote from C.S. Lewis who 
uh, has a kind of imagination and ability with words to capture something of this. So let me just describe this uh, in his words uh, to you. He starts by quoting from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, be perfect, or in the old King James Version of the Bible, be ye perfect. Okay, and he says this, ready? The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. It's not just sort of, you try your hardest. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. And here's what Lewis says. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. Uh, Lewis then picks up a biblical theme. Uh, He said in in the Bible, in the Psalms actually, that we are gods, little g gods, because we are made in the image of the big g god, you see. He said that we were gods and he's going to make good his words. If we let him for, we can prevent him if we choose. He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom as love and love as we cannot now imagine. That's resurrection, you see. You'll be that kind of creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom as love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror. Because you know what a mirror, how a mirror works, right? When it's got no stains on it, the mirror is filled with that which it is turned towards. That's how mirrors work, right? They, they're filled by that to which they are turned. That's what it is to image God, you see. And so what Lewis is saying is that we will be a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. Though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. And Lewis says that's what's beginning now. Is the pathway to that. The process, he says, will be long and in parts very painful. We looked at this last week, right, about how we've been raised spiritually. We have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. You see... This is the Christian hope, resurrection like this. Not, not just brought back to life, like life like how we know it. No, this kind of life, the life of glory, pulsating with such energy and joy and wisdom as love as we cannot now imagine. See, in one sense, it's true that when we die, we go to be with Christ, and that's, that's fantastic. Our spirits go to be with Christ, and that's all good. But that's not heaven. Make absolutely no mistake about this. That's not heaven, at least not in the sense that it's our final destiny. No, this is your destiny. Your destiny is to be made alive in Christ like this. Can I put it like this? This is the true you. This is who you really are. This is who God has always made you to be. This is your identity as a creature beloved of God and headed for glory. 
It will happen fully and finally at his coming when the Lord Jesus returns to raise and judge the living and the dead. It lies in the future, but Christ is dragging us to it, bit by bit, step by step. Here is where we're headed. This is who you are. Now, this has an incredibly significant implication, this idea of an order, because it means we Christians understand and have the resources to cope with suffering. We Christians are the least surprised or shocked people at the suffering and pain of this life and ultimately of death. The last thing that those realities should ever do to us is to prize us apart from Christ because we know where we live. We know what the timetable is. We know that we live between the first fruits and the harvest. And that gives us tremendous resources to be able to handle the pain and suffering of this life. Uh, We know that there, there is still pain and suffering because it's only first fruits time. It's not yet harvest time. But, but we don't just despair because we know that the harvest is coming because the first fruits have come. And it means that suffering only sends us closer to Christ because we know that it's only in him there is no other place where we have the hope of resurrection glory in the face of deathly misery. As Paul puts it elsewhere, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We need to hear this because we live in a world where if you close your eye and squint, you might just about believe the story that we've been told all the time, that science and technology are pushing back the problems of death and disease entirely and inevitably. And there is enough skerrick of truth in it. We do live in an incredibly uh, uh, blessed world now, at least in our part of it, medically. But of course, fundamentally, that's complete nonsense. Death still has precisely the same success rate it always has. It bats a thousand. Every single person, the entire population, of every age, every plant, every animal, every institution, every empire, every organisation succumbs and is con- succumbs to and is conquered by death. Except one. There's only one place you can go to hope. Not the technology. Not the lab coats. Jesus Christ. So look to him. And then comes the end. When the Lord returns, then comes the finale. The the word for end, uh, telos in Greek, uh, means end as in the finish or the completion, but it also means end as in goal or fruition or finale of all that's gone before, the kind of great climax that makes it all make sense. Then comes the telos, the finale, when Jesus Christ returns and the whole universe reaches its perfection. Verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You see what the apostle is saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ right now, having ascended, 
having risen from the dead and ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father, he's reigning right now. For this age, Jesus Christ reigns. And he's putting all his enemies under his feet. Every rule, every authority, every power will be conquered. There is no disease, there is no addiction, there is no demon. Uh, There is no fault or vice or weakness or temper or pride or self-pity or jealousy or greed that Jesus Christ does not aim to overcome as the enemy of his honour. He is putting all his enemies under his feet. No oppression, no tyrant, no injustice, no warfare will escape this purpose. And the encouragement for us is that you set yourself in that same battle and you're not doing it on your own. You're not doing it on your own because he is reigning. And in his good time, in his good, wise time, then comes the end. Where Jesus Christ hands the kingdom over to God the Father so that God, verse 28, may be all in all. You see the beautiful humility of Jesus? He gives it all to the Father. That God may be all in all. Maybe another way to put that is to say that God will be everything to everyone. Everything finding its right destiny and fulfilment by being filled with the presence and power and glory of God. That was his original purpose in creation. And that is the destiny of the universe and everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's resurrection. All right, let me pause there just for a moment. I've got one or two things to say by way of conclusion. Uh, but are there anyone, uh, any questions that people want to ask uh, just to clarify uh, at this point? Otherwise, uh, I'll wrap it up. Thank you for asking that question and exposing my lack of biblical knowledge. I'm going to pick a random psalm and say, psalm. no, I don't know. Uh, so does someone with a, with a concordance on their uh, Bible want to find where it says, we, you are God's? Jesus quotes it actually in, uh, in the Gospels. Uh, so I didn't look that reference up uh, beforehand, I'm sorry. But someone may... See, this is what you should do when you don't know the answer to a question. Just say, you know what, I don't know. Good example. Psalm 82. Bingo. There it is. And where is it quoted in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels? John. John 10. Quoted by Jesus. It's a very interesting, I mean, we, we won't go there, but that's a, it's a very interesting argument Jesus makes uh, in John 10, quoting, you are gods, you see. I'm, and you notice that what I've done is I've interpreted that to say not your gods in the sense that you're little semi-deities, but your gods in the sense that you are created in the image of God. It's, it's a very high view of human beings, actually. Uh, not that they're not human beings, right? it's not that we stop being human and start being divine, but rather that uh, God's purpose for us is to be um, both creatures like the rest of creation, but also image bearers unlike the rest of creation. Yeah. 
Anything else anyone wants to clarify? All clear? Um, Alex looks like she wants to ask something. Yes. Yes. Thanks. So the question that Alex asked is, uh, Paul seems really pretty um, cosmic in his scope here. It's not just that uh, uh, human beings that belong to Jesus Christ get raised, and but we're on a sort of scorched earth or something like that, and, and it's all just sort of moon-like, uh, uh, but that actually all things um, are uh, glorified. And that's actually consistent with the whole picture that the Bible gives us all the way through. Uh, that the, God's purpose, and you'll hear me, this is why I talk about this, it's that God's purposes in creation, which include the whole of creation and the goodness of the physical order, with a particular responsibility that human beings have to exercise a stewardship of care and concern uh, in the world, that all things, will, in, and that includes, I take it, um, uh, all the artefacts that go with being physical. So just, just run, let your mind run down here for a moment. Uh, you wear clothes, and there's a reason you wear clothes, not just because you'd be embarrassed if you didn't, but because you'd get cold if you didn't, or you'd get too hot if you didn't, and you wear, you have a houses, and you live under a shelter, because it's horrible to try and sleep in the rain, and if you live in other countries, then you'll either freeze to death or burn to death, and so as embodied physical creatures, we need both clothes and houses, and what's the other thing we need? Food! And so the processes of Production and distribution and consumption of food and houses and clothing, that's all part of our embodied nature. And that, I take it, will continue in, in, with all of the purified versions of the institutions that we have now associated with those things. All of that, will, you'll still be there. There won't be any ministers in glory, but there'll be builders. See, construction workers, you guys are good. Ministers, completely redundant. Um, so, so let your mind run with this for a little bit. And, and Alex's point is just exactly right, which is the whole way the Bible frames this up is to say, here is destiny. Here is where God's taking it all. Here's where you are now. Make a line from here up to here. Don't make it a wobbly old horrible sort of ugly line that sort of ditches things and messes things. Make it a beautiful, clear, clean head for that now. Head for that now. Head for that now personally because this is your personal destiny. Head for that now in your vocation because this is your vocational destiny as well. Make beautiful music now because they'll be singing in glory, right? Make great houses now. Make great financial organisations now because it's a whole lot easier to use money to buy and sell things instead of trying to swap with barter. Etc. Etc. Right. Make it now to reflect the way it will be in glory. That's that's the that's our path. That's our path. And so this has the most enormous implications. The fact that all things, as Paul puts it in Colossians, have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. It has the most enormous implications for how we live now. 
every part of your life, in every bit of it, in your relationships, in your vocation, all of it is dignified by its relation to destiny. Do you see that? All of it. We, 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 we are not little dualists where I've got my little spiritual life and I do my little spiritual thing and then I just get about my ordinary business. No, 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 we're, we're integrated, everything's spiritual because it's all to be related to our destiny in glory when all things are put right with God. Uh, actually, I'm going to pick it up from there because that kind of ties in um, with what I want to say to finish, which is that this is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about. You see, it's, it's a new world is born. That's what's happening. That's what the Christian gospel is. It's not just that you can have a religious experience or that we've discovered an interesting spirituality or that we've found a basis for moral living, although, of course, all of those things are true as well. But they're only true because they're part of a much bigger picture, that God in Christ has done something unimaginably beautiful and powerful, monumental. He's recreated the universe, starting in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead to be the first fruits, the first shovel full of soil on the building project. You like that? The first brushstroke of the masterpiece. And so this is what life is about. This is what true fulfilment about is about. That's part of what it means to uh, that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. It means that to live for Jesus, to live like Jesus, is to live right and to live well, to live the way we're created to live. All the things that are strange to the culture around us, living in forgiveness rather than revenge living in sacrifice rather than getting ahead, living in generosity rather than in keeping it tight and close, all of that makes sense. It doesn't make sense in the world, but it makes sense in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life of the age to come. Because to live according to the patterns of this age is actually to live according to death. But we know something, right? Death has been defeated it's been defeated in Jesus. And so we don't live in those patterns. We hate those patterns. We know that they're the enemies and we oppose them. We oppose anything that makes for death. Words of death, we hate them. Words like lies and gossip and slander. And emotions of death like rage and jealousy and indifference. And actions of death like stealing and drunkenness and greed. We don't do death because death has been defeated. We're into life. We speak up for people who lack their own voice. We reach out to people in need. We forgive people who hurt us because that's what life really is. All the while, as the Apostle puts it right at the end of this chapter, we seek to excel in the work of the Lord. Because we know that as Jesus Christ has been raised, our living of this life in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, to you we lift up uh, the joy and praise and thanks and honour and hope of our hearts. 
because you are the resurrected one. Death has been defeated in you. Life has been established and we want to live in that life. Lord, please feed us by your spirit. Clarify our vision. Confirm this in our hearts as our destiny and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, our beautiful saviour, our glorified, resurrected king. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.